What is up, everyone? I am back. This is Aaron Van Dyke with Memphis Murder, and this is episode two, which is kind of crazy, I would say. Um, I have been doing a lot of research on this case, and I'm going to try to keep it as short as possible. Um, you know, I am aiming for a longer episode than the last one, of course, but I feel like too much information in one go might be a little overwhelming for some people. So there are a lot of facts about this case, and some of them I'm going to leave out because I think um, the most important part is getting the point of this story across. And I want to go ahead and give a trigger warning as well, because this case does involve children being hurt pretty badly as well as killed. So if you would like to skip this episode, I don't blame you by any means. But woo, the rabbit hole that I went down researching everything is absolutely insane. So one of the first things that I do whenever I'm finding cases for this podcast or just reading cases at all is I call my mom because why not? I'm a mama's boy. But my mom used to work for Memphis Police as a dispatcher and I called her to ask if she had heard about this case and it turns out she was actually on duty at the time which is horrific. Um, this case is known a lot throughout Memphis. I asked a few friends about it, and they were like, yeah, we know exactly what you're talking about. Surprisingly, though, I'd never heard of it. So I questioned, was this big on the news? Who all knew about it? Like, why had I not heard about it? Because it was in 2008 when all of this happened, and I was a freshman in high school. Maybe I was just dumb to the news. Who knows? So... I think we're going to get started here. I don't really have much more to say other than if you have any stories that you would like me to research or tell on here, please feel free to hit me up on Instagram. That's probably going to be the easiest way, but my tag is at ATVandy, V-A-N-D-Y. So shoot me a message on there and let me know if you're interested in hearing a specific case. I would love to cover it, especially if it's insane. I love the more insane cases. Um... This one definitely takes the book for insane cases. But here we are. Let's 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 talk about it. So the case that I'm talking to you guys about today is the Leicester Street Massacre. And there are many questions that I had when researching this. Like I said, there's a lot of information and there's a lot of documentaries out there as well, so I do recommend that you check out the documentaries. I think they had a 48 Hours documentary. I watched a little bit of that for this, and um, a few other podcasters as well. There was a YouTube podcaster that I found where I found some of this information, and um, her name is Emma Kennedy. So if you look her up on YouTube, she has a video about this as well. So thank you, Emma. But, uh... Yeah, this is the Leicester Street Massacre. Thank you. 
So this happened on a Saturday, March the 1st, 2008, at 722 Leicester Street in Memphis, Tennessee. Cecil Dotson has invited his friends and family over for a barbecue and to watch a basketball game. The family members that were coming over and friends, all of this included his father, Jesse Sr., his brother, Jesse Dotson Jr., his half-brother, William Waddell, and his fiancé, Marissa Williams. Um, It also included two of his friends, Hollis Seals and Shendry Robinson. Uh, His five children were also there as well. They were all under the age of 10. The group soon discovered that they were not able to watch the basketball game on Cecil's television because he could not receive the broadcast. At around 6.30 p.m., Jesse Sr., who we're just going to call Sr. From here on out, there's a lot of Jessies and a lot of different Cecils. You'll notice that through this, so I'm just going to call Jesse Sr. Sr. So at 6.30 p.m., Sr. left Cecil's house. This was Cecil's father. As Sr. was leaving, he saw Cecil on the front porch cleaning his grill. Little did he know that that would be the last time he saw his son or five of the others inside that house ever again. Around 11.30 p.m., Cecil's half-brother, William, left the home. The next morning, which is March the 2nd, 2008, Sr. did his usual routine of going to pick up his son, Jesse Dotson, for work. They worked together um, in a painting business, and I know Jesse Dotson was a painter who worked with his father in this company. He ran to his daughter, Nicole's house, whom Jesse lived with at the time, and to his surprise... Jesse was not there. Nicole also stated that she did not know where Jesse was either. Um, He also wasn't answering any of his phone calls. So angry by this, Senior left and went about his day at work. That night, Jesse reached out to his father and stated that him and his girlfriend had gotten into an argument, and she took his phone, which is why he wasn't at the apartment or answering his phone. The same day, Cecil Dotson's mother, Erica Smith, tried calling Cecil a few times, and was not getting an answer from him either. A little concerned by this, she drove by the house to check on him. She went to the front door and noticed the storm door was closed, but the inside door was slightly cracked, yet she was not getting an answer at the door. She could hear the radio, but she did not hear any other sounds inside the home, which was a little bit more concerning to her, because she would normally hear children at the very least. Not being able to do much more, she left and called Nicole, Cecil, and Jesse's sister asking if she'd heard from Cecil and let her know that she could not get a hold of him. Also, no one seemed to be home. Nicole stated she had not heard anything and that she would ask Jesse if he had heard anything. Jesse went to dinner that night with William Waddell, which was him and Cecil's half-brother. He actually ended up asking William if they could go pick up Cecil. William stated that he'd been trying to reach Cecil all day and couldn't get in touch with them, so because of that, they decided not to go by the Lester house. The next morning on March the 3rd of 2008, Jesse and his father, Sr., left for work around 8 a.m. Work was pretty normal, except it ended a little bit early at around 11 a.m. because of rain that day, so Sr. took Jesse back to his apartment. Later that afternoon, Senior received a phone call from Jesse asking him if he could drive by Cecil's house because Erica had been worried about him and had not been able to get into contact with him. Not long after this, though, Erica had gotten a phone call herself that Cecil had not shown up for work that morning. 
This was the final straw for her, as it was extremely out of the ordinary for Cecil not to show up for work or answer his phone. So Erica ended up calling the police. Officer Randall Davis was first to arrive at 722 Leicester Street. He stated that the first thing he noticed when stepping up to the front door was the smell of dead bodies. He immediately knew something was wrong. He walked through the storm door and opened the interior door just a little bit more. He then saw a person's foot lying on the floor. Once he fully opened the door, he saw four bodies on the living room floor with massive amounts of blood everywhere. These people seemed to have sustained multiple gunshot wounds. Officer Davis said that he did not check for vital signs on any of these bodies because it was obvious that they were all deceased. Continuing into the home, Officer Davis and two other Memphis Police Department officers searched for any survivors or even the person who did this because they had no idea if the perpetrator was still in the house. The weird thing was, all of the blood that they had seen around the house was dry, as if it had been there for days. Davis came upon the hallway's bathroom and noticed the walls and the floors in the bathroom were covered with blood. A lot more blood than they had seen in the living room of the home. Looking around, he then saw the bathtub, which was also full with blood. Inside this pool of blood in the bathtub was another body. This was nine-year-old C.J. Dotson, Cecil's son. Upon first glance, Davis caught a glimpse of something sticking out of C.J.'s head. When he got closer to C.J., he realized it was a steak knife lodged into this little boy's head. It was four and a half inches deep into his skull. At first, Davis assumed the boy was dead due to the knife in his head and the amount of blood in the bathroom. But just as soon as he had assumed this, CJ blinked his eyes. Davis immediately alerted the two other officers in the home and called for paramedics to come rush CJ out of the home and get him to the hospital immediately. In all chaos, they had found a survivor. In the first bedroom to the left, Davis found four-year-old Samario, who was deceased on the floor of the bedroom. He had been brutally stabbed and beaten. Right across the hall from Samario was the second bedroom in the home, where Davis found two-year-old Cecil II and five-year-old Cedric, whom both appeared to be deceased as well. All three of these children were Cecil's. At the same time as Davis discovered these three children, another officer shouted that he had found another survivor, Cecil's youngest child, Sanaya. He carried Sanaya out of the home to wait on paramedics. All officers exited the home just as paramedics and Memphis Fire Department personnel had arrived. Firefighter Jason Vosberg explained that arriving at the house, he could smell blood in the air, and he described it as a thick, spoiled smell like it had been there for a while. Firefighter and emergency medical technician Daniel Moore was in instructed to check the bodies in the living room for signs of life first, but he did not touch them because just like Officer Davis, he said it was obvious that the bodies were deceased just by looking at them. Mr. Vosberg and another paramedic entered one of the bedrooms and shockingly found that five-year-old Cedric was also alive. They carried him out of the front of the house and to an ambulance. Returning inside, Vosberg and Moore were summoned to the bathroom, where another firefighter was tending to CJ. 
The three of them picked up CJ out of the bathtub and carried him to an ambulance as well. Vosberg recalls seeing cuts all over CJ's face, puncture wounds to his abdomen, but the most shocking sight of all was the blade sticking out of his head. By 2.30 a.m. on the morning of March the 4th, all deceased bodies were transported to the morgue, and Sergeant Mullins and his team had left. They returned around 10.30 a.m. with the crime scene processing unit to continue surveying inside the home. All of the victims in the living room had been shot in the legs except for Mr. Seals. It was evident that two guns were used in this, but none of the guns had been found. They believed that these victims were shot in the legs to keep them from running. They did find multiple bullet casings from the two different guns in various places within the living room of the home. The weirdest thing that was found throughout all of this was a Ziploc bag full of bullet casings in one of the couch cushions. None of their team had put it there, which indicated the perpetrator was collecting the casings and had planned to remove them from the crime scene. On top of this, Sergeant Mullins also believed the bodies had been moved and staged somehow after their deaths. Cecil was found kneeled in front of the couch with his body laying on the lower couch cushions, but he also had a bag of marijuana in his left hand. Due to majority of his gunshot wounds being to the front of his chest, neck, and lower legs, this showed that he had to be facing his attacker when he was shot, standing and not kneeling like he was found. The bag of marijuana in his hand was so large that there's also no way he could have held on to it during the attack. He would have dropped this bag while he was trying to flee or defend himself. Miss Robertson, Mr. Hollis Seal's girlfriend, also seemed to have been staged after her death. It looked as if she was initially shot while sitting on the couch. Then her body was dragged down, her shirt was lifted up, her pants were pulled down, and a bag of crack rocks had been found right next to her body. There was not enough blood on the floor where she was found to show that she had been shot and killed where she laid. All of the scene was photographed that night with all evidence being bagged, tagged, and sent back to the station to try and connect whoever did this to these poor people. On March the 7th, only four days after being found in the bathtub, CJ had regained consciousness in the hospital and he was ready to give an interview to the investigators on the case. During this interview, CJ stated that Uncle Junior was the one who did this to them. Uncle Junior was the one responsible for shooting his parents and the other adults, then beating and stabbing his siblings. When asked who Uncle Junior was, CJ revealed that it was his uncle, Jesse Dotson. Deputy Director Armstrong brought Jesse in for questioning that same day. In this interview, Armstrong asked Jesse, Hey Jesse, what does your family call you? What's your nickname with them? Jesse stated, Junior is what they call me. Armstrong then brought out a tape recorder. He played the tape where CJ said, Uncle Junior did this. Then he asked Jesse again, What did they call you? Jesse said, Junior. And Armstrong said, Okay, great. What did CJ just say on that tape? Junior did this? Jesse went silent for a moment, then almost immediately confessed everything. That was it. They had their guy. They would go down easy in court with a confession, except Jesse Dotson recanted his statement 
the very next day. He stated that he was forced into making that statement by the police or they had threatened to kill him if he didn't confess. Now, let's give a little background on Jesse Dotson. I tried to find as much as I could. There's not a whole lot out there, but I would have liked to know more of his background. How did he grow up? Where did he grow up? Who was he around? What was his life like in the early days? And it's crazy. The thing is, Jesse didn't have a great childhood by any means, but that wasn't a reason for him to have murdered basically his entire family in that house on March the 1st. So this is what I found. Jesse Dotson was born on December the 19th, 1974 to Senior and Priscilla. He was born in Florida because at the time, Senior was in the Army and stationed in Florida. After the Army, it was difficult for Senior to find a job, which led them to moving to Memphis, Tennessee. Jesse was raised, the best his parents knew how, with his younger sister, Nicole, and his older brother, Cecil. His father, Senior, was said to be extremely abusive verbally and physically at the time. Both Senior and Priscilla fought constantly. When Jesse was six years old, Priscilla left Senior and divorced him. After this, it was said that Priscilla moved around often with her three children. Jesse is said to have been attending something like 10 different schools throughout his childhood and teenage years. Having this unstable system of new schools, new homes, and not knowing if they'd be staying or moving, Jesse had a very difficult time in school. He was getting into trouble all of the time and was diagnosed with a few learning disabilities. Jesse and his family were also very poor, so he was bullied about this often throughout school. He was given counseling in his education years, but not once did his mother attend any of these meetings. In eighth grade, Jesse dropped out of school completely. At age 15, Jesse began getting into trouble with police. His mother said he was spiraling mentally. He would fight with her and his siblings almost daily, which led to her calling the cops on him multiple times. At age 19 in 1994, Jesse killed a man in a drug deal gone wrong. He pleaded guilty to second-degree murder, essentially that plea would get him lesser of a sentence, which it did, um, which he did receive 18 years for in prison. During the entire time he was in prison, his mother visited him once. That's it. One time. None of his other family members came to see him, which is terrible. But also in this situation, I don't know what I would do. I can't judge them because how would I react? If it was a family member of mine or my brother or my mother, whatever the case is, would would I react the same? So honestly, I, I can't judge because of this. Either way, this does not help Jesse's mental health. Jesse had joined a gang in prison, and I believe this was a way to find some sense of family. Because of this, he was getting into fights all the time, and it was constant for him to be fighting. Yet after 14 years of serving his time, he was released on parole on August the 7th, 2007. This is only seven months before the Leicester Street Massacre. After prison, Jesse's sister Nicole takes him in. Nicole later stated that she didn't feel like she had a choice. 
She was afraid of him. His father senior also gave him a job as a painter. Things are fine for months until we get to March 1st of 2008 when all hell broke loose. So the trial itself began in October of 2010, nearly two years after the massacre had happened, and it lasted roughly two weeks. Jesse was convicted of three counts of attempted first-degree murder and six counts of first-degree murder. During the trial, it was discovered that Jesse had been drinking that day and got into an argument with his brother Cecil, which led to him shooting Cecil in the head, then eliminating all witnesses. Most of this comes from testimony from Jesse's mother, Priscilla, who claimed that Jesse confessed to him as well about all of the murders on the same night that he confessed to police. When she had asked him why the babies, Jesse simply stated because they had seen him. Jesse's defense team argued that this was a gang crime and Jesse could not have killed all of those people. They used the fact that there were multiple guns used in the killings and the fact that there were drugs placed on some of the victims. The jurors, who were all chosen in Nashville at the time in hopes that they would find people who were not familiar with this case, determined that this did not happen to be a gang-related crime and Jesse Dotson did commit these heinous crimes. They found him guilty after two hours of deliberation on all counts and sentenced him to death by lethal injection six different times, one for each count of murder he had committed. On November the 9th, he received an additional 120 years for the brutal stabbings and beatings of the three surviving children in the home that day. In September 2014, Jesse and his legal team appealed his sentencing to the Supreme Court and attempted to appeal the death penalty sentencing he received. The Supreme Court affirmed his convictions and sentences while also affirming the six death penalty convictions, and they stated that the death penalty convictions he received are not out of the ordinary for other cases like this in Tennessee. Jesse still claims he is innocent to this day. In 2017, all three surviving children, 9-year-old Sanaya, 14-year-old Cedric, and 18-year-old Cecil Dotson, these were the ages that they were during this interview in 2017, they all sat down with Stephanie Spurlock of Memphis News Channel 3 and gave an interview. CJ said that the night of the massacre, he simply played dead in the bathtub until police arrive on the scene 40 hours later. The scars on his head from the knife are a vivid reminder of what happened to him, but his grandmother says that they don't really talk about it anymore as they are just trying to move on. When Spurlock asked CJ if he ever thinks about his uncle and what he did, CJ responded, He's my uncle, so I love him, but I can never forgive him for what he did. So I just have to say this case is just sad. I mean, it's it's awful. These children that were involved, the heinous crimes that he committed against them. Um, later on, the crime scene, you know, was reviewed and throughout the trial, which I didn't cover much of um, because it is so long. You can actually watch the entire trial on YouTube. But they discovered that Jesse had taken steak knives from the kitchen to stab these children, and then he used boards, just wooden boards throughout the house to beat them. It's heinous. I mean, it's insane. And I don't feel bad at all for the 
conviction that he got or the death penalty that he got or the fact that he got six of them. In fact, when he got these convictions and heard them in court, he started clapping in court. What kind of a monster starts clapping in court when you receive six death penalties? I don't know why I'm asking that because what kind of a monster would commit these crimes? It's terrible. I do know that the 722 Lester House is still there in Memphis, and I believe there are renters within the house at this time. Um, it, I mean, it's tragic. And I, I'm going to go ahead at the end of this and just name all of the, um, all of the deceased in this crime. And uh, I think it's, it's something that we need to remember. So you've got Cecil Dotson Sr. He was 30 year old, years old at the time. Marissa Williams, who was 27 years old. Hollis Seals, who was 33 years old. Shendry Robertson, who was 23 years old. And two of Cecil's children, which was four-year-old Samario Dotson and two-year-old Cecil Dotson II. This has been insane. Um, I am going to end it here. Um, I am proud that I'm able to keep it under the 30-minute mark as far as the recording. But uh, like I said, if you guys have any cases or want to send me anything, let me know. I'd be happy to do some research on them. Um, but I will see you guys hopefully next week. Thanks. Thank you.